Hello, friends, brothers and sisters, children of God. Welcome back to Jack the Bridge. Today we're going to look a little deeper or read more of Nikos Katzenzakis' Last Temptation of Christ. This will be chapter 3. This chapter really gives us a little bit more description and a very uh, graphic look into some of the hypothetical struggles that young Jesus was having. And um, this chapter uh, makes mention of how it's referencing the, t- the time uh, in Jesus' life that he's 12 years old. And, of course, we know there's so little uh, accounting, recounting in, in, in biblical text of quite a, quite a segment of Jesus' life. Anyway, beautiful sparkly day today. And um, one reason I'm very thankful today is I had a conversation with Ron Johnson, Ron Johnston of Godcast. And it was extremely, it was more fruitful than I expected it to be in that we had a conversation and I talked all about the range history uh, feelings I have about faith and obviously in Christian values, teachings, morality. And uh, we talked a lot about our own experiences with different things, raising our kids, situations, and um, I'm pleased to say I feel very light right now. Uh, I've been saved. And I said it with my lips in, in, for, the, for the first time, I guess, that I've done that in front of anyone. And uh, I have some gratitude here. It was really a nice long and not stressful conversation and process. So anyway, brothers and sisters, I'm thankful to to have this acquaintance and the acquaintance that we have and the love that we share and the knowledge that Jesus Christ died on the cross and was brought back to life, that he was indeed resurrected to save the world. Anyway, back to the book. Chapter 3. The young man remained all alone. He leaned against the cross and sponged the sweat from his forehead. The breath had caught in his throat. He was gasping. For an instant, the world revolved about him, but then it stood still once more. He heard his mother light the fire so that she could put on the meal on bright and early and be in time to run like the others to see the crucifixion. 
All her neighbors had left already. Her husband still groaned, fighting to move his tongue, but only his larynx was alive, and he made nothing but clucking sounds. Outside, the street was again deserted. But while the youth leaned on the cross, his eyes shut, thinking nothing and hearing nothing except the beating of his own heart, suddenly he jolted with pain. Once more, he felt the invisible vulture claw deeply into his scalp. He's come again. He's come again, he murmured, and he began to tremble. He felt that the claws bore far down, crack open his skull, touch his brain. He clenched his teeth so that he would not cry out. He did not want his mother to become frightened again and start screaming, clasping his head between his palms, he held it lightly, and as though he feared it would run away, he's come again, he's come again, he murmured, trembling. The first, very first time, he was already 12 years old and sitting with the sighing, sweating elders in the synagogue, listening to, the, to them elucidate God's word. He felt the light prolonged tingling on top of his head, very tender like a caress. He had closed his eyes. What bliss when those fluffy wings grasped him and carried him to the seventh heaven. This must be paradise, he thought. And a deep endless smile flowed out from under his lowered eyelids and from his happy, half-open mouth, a smile which licked his flesh with ardent desire until his, his face disappeared. The old men saw this mysterious man-eating smile and conjectured that God had snatched the boy up in his talons. Putting their fingers to their lips, they remained silent. The years went by. He waited and waited, but the caress did not return. And then one day... Passover, springtime, glorious weather. He went to Cana, his mother's village, to choose a wife. His mother had forced him. She wanted to see him married. He was 20 years old. His cheeks were covered with thick, curly fuzz, and his blood boiled so furiously he could no longer sleep at night. His mother had taken advantage of this, the acme of his youth, and prevailed upon him to go to Cana, her own village, to select a bride. So there he stood, a rose in his hand, gazing at the village girls as they danced under a large, newly foliaged poplar. And while he looked and weighed one against the other, he wanted them all, but did not have the courage to choose. Suddenly he heard crack cackling laughter behind him, a cool fountain rising from the bowels of the earth. He turned, descending upon him with her red sandals, unplated hair, and complete armor of ankle bands, bracelets, and earrings was Magdalene the only daughter of his uncle, the rabbi. The young man's mind shook violently. It's her I want. Her I want, he cried. And he held out his hand to give her the rose. But as he did so, ten claws nailed themselves into his head and two frenzied wings 
feet above him, tightly covering his temples. He shrieked and fell down on his face, frothing at the mouth. His unfortunate mother, writhing with shame, had to throw her kerchief over his head, lift him up in her arms, and depart. From, ta- from that time on, he was completely lost. It came when the moon was full and he roamed the fields or during his sleep in the silence of the night and most often in springtime, when the whole world was in bloom and fragrant, that the at every opportunity had to be happy, to taste the simplest human joys, to eat, sleep, to mix with his friends and laugh, to encounter a girl on the street and think, I like her. The ten claws immediately nailed themselves down into him and his desire vanished. But never before this daybreak had they fallen on him with such ferocity. He rolled himself up under the workbench and buried his head in in his breast, remaining this way for a long time. The world sank away. He heard nothing but a hum inside him and above the furious beatings of wings. Little by little, the claws relaxed, unhooked themselves, and freed slowly one by one. First his mind, then the bone, and finally the skin of his head. Suddenly he felt great great relief and great fatigue. Emerging from under the workbench, he put his head to his hand and hurriedly ran his fingers through his hair to investigate his scalp. It seemed to him that it had been pierced. But his searching fingers found not a single wound, and he grew calm. But when he drew out his hand and looked at it in the light, he shuddered. His fingers were dripping with blood. God is angry, he murmured. Angry. The blood has begun to flow. He raised his eyes and looked. No one. But he smelled the bitter stench of a wild beast in the air. He has come again. He thought with terror. He is all around me and beneath my feet and above my head. Bowing his head, he waited. The air was mute, immobile. The light, apparently naive and harmless, played on the wall opposite him. And on the cane lath ceiling... I won't open my mouth, he decided within himself. I won't breathe a word. Perhaps he will take pity on me and leave. But as he made his decision, his lips parted and he spoke. His voice was full of grievance. Why do you draw my blood? Why are you angry? How long are you going to pursue me? He stopped, bent over, his mouth open, the hairs of his head standing on end, and his eyes full of fear. He listened. At first there was nothing. The air was motionless, silent. But then, suddenly, someone above was speaking to him. He cocked his ear and heard, heard, and shook his head violently, continually, as though saying, No! 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 Finally, he too opened his mouth. His voice no longer trembled. I can't. I'm illiterate, an idler, afraid of everything. I love good food, wine, laughter. I want to marry, to have children. Leave me alone. He remained still again and listened. What do you say? I can't hear. 
suddenly he had to put his hands over his ears to soften the savage voice above him. With his whole face squeezed together, holding his breath, he heard now and answered, Yes, yes, I'm afraid. You want me to stand up and speak to you? What can I say? How can I say it? I can't, I tell you. I'm illiterate. What did you say? The kingdom of heaven? I don't care about the kingdom of heaven. I like the earth. I want to marry, I tell you. I want Magdalene. Even if she's a prostitute, it's my fault she's become, she became one. My fault, and I shall save her. Her, not the earth, not the kingdom of this world. It's Magdalene I want to save. That's enough for me. Speak lower. I can't understand you. He shaded his eyes with his, with his palm. The soft light which entered through the skylight was dazzling him. He had riveted his eyes upon the ceiling above him and was waiting. He listened, holding his breath. And the more he heard, the more his face glowed mischievously, contentedly. His thick, fresh lips tingled with numbness, and suddenly he burst out laughing. Yes, yes, he murmured. You understand perfectly. Yes, on purpose. I do it on purpose. I want you to detest me, to go and find someone else. I want to be rid of you. Yes, yes, on purpose, he continued, finding the courage to speak out. And shall I make crosses all my life so that the messiahs you choose can be crucified? He said, this said, he unhooked and nailed the nail-studded strap from its place on the wall and belted it around him. He looked at the skylight. The sun had at last risen high. The sky above was hard and blue like steel. He had to hurry. The crucifixion was to take place at noon under the full fury of the sun. Kneeling. He placed his shoulder under the cross and clasped it in his arms. He raised one knee, braced himself. It seemed incredibly heavy to him, impossible to lift, and staggered slowly towards the door. Gasping, he took two steps and a third and reached the door at last, but suddenly his knees gave way. His head swam and his face fell down over the threshold, crushed under the cross. The small house vibrated. A shrill female cry was heard from within. A door opened. His mother appeared. She was tall with large dark, large eyes and dark wheat-colored skin. She had already passed the first stage of youth and entered the uneasy, honey bitterness of autumn. Blue rings encircled her eyes. Her mouth was firm like her son's, but her chin stronger than his and more willful. She wore a violet linen kerchief and two elongated silver rings. Her only jewelry tinkled on her ears. As soon as she opened the door, the old father became visibly behind her. He was seated on his mattress, his upper body unclothed, his flabby skin pale yellow, his eyes glassy and motionless. She had just fed him, and he was still laboriously chewing his meal of bread, olives, and onions. The curly white hairs on his chest were full of drivel and crumbs. Next to his bed was the celebrated staff, which had been predestined to blossom on the day of his engagement. It was now dry and withered. 
When the mother entered and saw her son fallen and palpitating under the cross, she dug her nails into her cheeks and stared at him without running to lift him up. She had grown weary of having him brought to her unconscious every two minutes in someone's arms, of seeing him depart, to wander through the fields or deserted places, to remain day and night without food, refuse to work, do nothing but sit for hours with his eyes pinned on the air, a daydreamer and night walker whose life was bare of accomplishment. It was only when a cross was ordered for a crucifixion that he threw himself, body and soul, into his work and labored day and night like a madman. He went to he went no longer to the synagogue. He did not want to set foot in Cana again or to go to any of the festivals. When the moon was full and his mind reeled, an unfortunate mother heard him rave and shout in a delirium as though he were quarreling with some devil. How many times she prostrated herself before her brother-in-law, an old rabbi, the old rabbi who was versed in exercising devils. The afflicted came to him from the ends of the earth and he cured them. Just the other day, she had fallen at his feet and complained, you heal strangers, but you do not want to heal my son. The rabbi shook his head. Mary... Your boy isn't being tormented by the devil. It's not the devil. It's God. So what can I do? Is there no cure? The wretched mother asked. It's God, I tell you. No, there is no cure. Why does he torment him? The old exorcist sighed but did not answer. Why does he torment him? The mother asked again. Because he loves him, the old rabbi finally replied. Mary looked at him, startled. She opened her mouth to question him further, but the rabbi closed her lips. Do not ask. Such is the law of God. Knitting his brows, he nodded for her to leave. The malady had lasted for years. Mary, even though she was a mother, had grown weary at last. And now that she saw her son fallen face down over the threshold with the blood oozing from his forehead, she did not budge. She only sighed from the bottom of her heart, sighed. However, not for her son, but for her own fate. She had been so unfortunate in her life, unfortunate in her husband, unfortunate in her son. She had been widowed before she was married, was a mother without possessing a child, and now she was growing older. The white hairs multiplied every day, and yet she had never known what it was to be young, had never felt the warmth of her husband, the sweetness and pride of being a wife and mother. Her eyes had finally been drained dry. Whatever tears God apportioned her, she had already spilled, and she looked at her son and her husband dry-eyed. If she still sometimes wept, it was in the spring when she sat all by herself and gazed out at the green fields and smelled the perfumes which came from the blossoming trees. At these times she cried not for her husband or her son, but for her own wasted life. 
The young man had risen and was sponging up the blood with the edge of his garment. He turned, saw his mother regarding him with severely, and became angry. He knew that look which forgave him nothing, knew those compressed and bitter lips. He could stand it no longer. He too had become weary in his house, in this house with the decrepit paralytic, the inconsolable mother, and the daily servile admonitions. Eat, work, get married. Eat, work, get married. His mother parted her compressed lips. Jesus, she said reprovingly, who were you quarreling with again early this morning? The son bit his lips so that an unkind word would not escape them. He opened the door, the sun entered, and also a scorching dust-laden wind from the desert. Without speaking, he brushed the sweat and blood from his forehead, put his shoulder in the place once more, and lifted the cross. His mother's hair had poured out down to her shoulder blades and she ran her hands over it, gathered it together under her kerchief, and took a step toward her son. But as soon as she saw him clearly in the light, she quivered with astonishment. How incessantly his face changed. How it flowed like water. Each day she saw him for the first time, found an unknown light on his forehead. In his eyes and mouth, a smile, sometimes happy, sometimes full of affliction, a gluttonous luster which licked his forehead, chin, neck, and devoured him. Today, large black flames were blazing in his eyes, frightened she wanted for a moment to ask him, Who are you? But she restrained herself. My boy, she said with trembling lips. She remained quiet waiting to see if this grown man was truly her son. Would he turn to look at her, to speak to her? He did not turn. Giving a heave, he adjusted the cross on his back and walking steadily now, strode out of the house. His mother leaned against the doorpost and watched him step lightly from cobble to cobble as he mounted the slope. The Lord only knew where he found such strength. It was not a cross on his back, but two wings. They propelled him. Lord, my God, the confused mother whispered. Who is he? Whose son is he? He doesn't resemble his father. He doesn't resemble anyone. Every day he changes. He isn't one person. He's many. Oh, my mind is upside down. She remembered one afternoon when she was in the small courtyard next to the well, holding him to her breast. It was summer, and the vine arbor above her was heavy with grapes. While the newborn nurse, she fell into a deep sleep, but not before she was able to see. In the space of an instant, a limitless dream. It seemed to her that there was an angel in heaven who held the star dangling from his hand, a star like a lantern, and he advanced and illuminated the earth below. And there was a road in the darkness with many zigzags and glowing brightly like a flash of lightning. It crept toward her and began to extinguish itself at her feet. And while she gazed in fascination and asked herself, where this road could have begun and why it ended at the soles of her feet, she raised her eyes. What did she see? 
The star had stopped above her head. Three horsemen had appeared at the end of the star-illuminated road, and the green golden crown sparkled on their heads. They stopped for an instant, looked at the sky, saw the star halt, then spurred their horses and galloped toward her. The mother could now make out their faces clearly. The middle one was like a white rose, a beautiful fair-haired youth with cheeks still covered with fuzz. To his right stood a yellow man with a pointed black beard and slanting eyes. A Negro was on the left. He had curly white hair, golden rings in his ears, and dazzling teeth. But before the mother could sort them out any better or cover her son's eyes so that he would not be dazzled by the intense light the three horsemen had arrived, dismounted and knelt before her. The white prince was the first to advance. The infant had left the breast and was now standing erect now on his mother's knees. The prince took off the crown and laid it humbly at the baby's feet. Next, the Negro slid, slid forward on his knees, removed a fistful of emeralds and rubies from beneath his shirt and spread them with great tenderness over the tiny head. Lastly, the yellow man held out his hand and placed an armful of long peacock feathers at the child's feet for him to play with. The baby looked at all three of the men and smiled at them. He did not put out his tiny hands to touch the presents. Suddenly the three kings vanished and a young shepherd appeared, dressed in sheepskins and holding a tureen of warm milk between his hands. As soon as the infant saw the milk, he danced upon his mother's knees, bent his little face into the tureen and began to drink the milk insatiably, happily. Leaning against the doorpost, the mother recalled the limitless dream and sighed. What hopes this only son had given her, what wonders the sorcerers had prophesied for him. Had not the old rabbi himself gazed at him, opened the scriptures, read the prophets over the tiny head, and searched the infant's chest, eyes, even the soles of his feet, to find a sign? But alas, as time went on, her hopes withered and fell. Her son had chosen an evil road, a road which led him further and further from the ways of men. She secured her kerchief tightly and bolted the door. Then she, she too began to mount the hill. She was going to see the crucifixion to make time go by. That concludes chapter 3. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing today, know that Jesus Christ loves you. And I guess I do too. Whatever you do, do the next right thing. Have a great day. And I'm sure we'll catch up soon. Godspeed. Thank you.
right down on me. I was walking on down that lonesome road, just moving on down. And I was saying to myself, boy, where are you running to? For the last time I looked around, for it had come to me. The answer is not just blowing in the wind. It's in the roots of the trees. The lessons are there of one to see. The problem lies in noticing, just noticing. You don't have to bang your head anymore. Just watch that river flow on by and by. River, river, run free, run down on me. Mighty river, river, run free, right down on me. I was walking on down that lonesome road, just moving on down. And I was saying to myself, boy, where are you running to? For the last time I looked around, for it had come to me. The answer is not just blowing in the wind, it's in the roots of the trees. The lessons are there for one to see. The problem lies in noticing, just noticing. You don't have to bang your head anymore. Just watch that river flow on by and by. By and by.